I'd like to do today is talk a bit about um, about contempt, not engage in contempt, I hope, but talk a bit about contempt and its relationship to civil discourse. And there's going to be a little bit of philosophy in here because I can't resist being a philosopher, but it won't be too much, um, just a bit. So we have this concept of civil discourse that many of us, most of us, hopefully all of us, value. Um, and we use phrases like this a lot, or things related about civility, call for, um, sometimes for kindness in civil discussion. Um, but there's, of course, a lot to be said about what this means and why it matters. And sometimes we just take for granted that everybody knows what we mean and why it matters. But I don't think that we should take it for granted, in part because people's understandings of civil discourse vary. And sometimes those commitments to civil discourse are kind of at the surface. I've been interested in civility and manners for a long time. When I was a uh, teenager, I always loved reading Miss Manners, advice columns. I'm fascinated by advice columns. Like, how do you become an advice columnist? It was my um, backup plan in graduate school. If I didn't get a job, I wanted to um, have an advice column. But, um, but the, sort of the question about like, the, the ways in which we engage with people, because an awful lot of the questions to get Miss Manners and other advice columnists are about sort of getting along with people, friends and strangers and relatives, and looking for ways to do this. And I think we all know from personal experience that it's quite hard often, and it's particularly hard when they're about issues that we really care about or feel deeply about or passionately. And so these questions about how we engage in discussions with people, we know that they affect our relationships with them and that they affect the ways in which we live in our communities and, and inhabit those communities, and so they are important. And I've always thought not just that manners and etiquette are important, but that they're also actually part of, of ethics. So I am an ethicist. I'm a, I do um, sort of abstract ethical theory in my sort of day job, but I don't see these as separate conversations because I think that our deepest moral attitudes toward each other often come out in kind of trivial circumstances. So I spend, as probably a lot of you do, a lot of time driving in D.C. traffic, and I find that it brings out the worst in me um, and that I have to do a lot of sort of self-conscious like trying to treat and sometimes also to see the human beings behind the wheels of the car and not just the vehicle that's constantly in my way. Um, you know, we, we know this, and, and the ways in which our deeper attitudes come out in our behavior, sometimes even in trivial contexts, that there's a, there's a connection there. And so it's a connection we're thinking about because I think that some of these things that just look like issues about how we address people, how we interact with people may just seem like they're niceties and they're not in some ways as important as some of those, you know, the big issues that we talk about as well. But I think they're more important than many people often think. I'm also struck by the significance of this. Oh, we can switch. That sounds working. <laughs> okay. Well, try not. Oh, yeah, that's good. I'm echoing a bit. Is that too much echo? I can put it further. Um, I'm also struck by this. Also, when I'm teaching, I teach. Georgetown has two required philosophy classes for all students, and one of which is ethics, and I teach that one a lot. And most of the time, they don't particularly want to be there, so there's a lot of work to do um, in this. And so I end up spending a lot of time talking about civility and discourse and in my class and sort of engaging, because I find that that's one of the issues that students find most challenging. I often ask my students to write out on a piece of paper. Yes, am I? Why are they not interested in philosophy? Oh, I think they are. They are interested in ethics. It's the philosophy part that they wonder about. Um, yeah, it, or at least if they're not interested in ethics, they don't feel the need to, they don't want to say so. Although I do. I mean, philosophers also take seriously the question is, can you even teach ethics? Like, what is the point of an ethics class? That I think I get more from students. It's not that they're not interested in ethics, but they don't know that there's anything to be done in a classroom that's going to be useful for them for, for ethics as well. So that's a, that's a fair question to ask. Um, so but I, I often ask my students to write out on a piece of paper, like something, answers to questions, and then I just read them out loud because it's really interesting to hear what they think and for them to hear each other's views anonymously. And this semester, for the first time, I asked them about whether they thought they could express their opinions freely on campus, and the vast majority of them said no. 
And so I thought this was striking for a couple of reasons. One, because it isn't tracking like certain political perspectives at all, obviously. Um, most of my students didn't feel like they could be themselves on campus, that they thought that if they expressed a view that maybe somebody else was going to judge them or somebody was going to get mad at them or that it was going to somehow harm other parts of their lives. And I found that really striking and also really troubling. But then I, I, I was also thinking at the same time, well, in some ways it's not surprising. You know, there's a lot of focus sometimes on college students and college campuses and concerns that students are, you know, don't want to be, you know, exposed to controversial views. That's not my experience of students. Mine is that they do want to engage with people who don't have their viewpoints, but they don't know how. And that also they don't really have much by way of models of that. So this is, you know, one of these things, obviously, as we learn from parenting or teaching that, you know, do as I say, not as I do, isn't very effective. And I think one of the things that we see is that students, they, they may want to know how to have civil conversations. They, they may think this would be better, but they don't know how to do it. And the adults in their lives aren't giving them very much by way of example. So I spent some time in class talking about this and hopefully trying to model it for them so that they can think more constructively about it. So today, I, what I'm, I'm going to be focusing on, there's two aspects of civil discourse that I want to focus on, or rather sort of two attitudes that I think undermine it um, or contribute to it in different ways. And so the one that I'm going to talk about today is contempt, contempt for people. And then next week I want to talk about a different attitude, an attitude of having faith in people, something that's not quite the same as, at least I'm thinking of it as a religious faith, although I think it's not unconnected to that, but about having faith in people's capacities to improve and also in our own. But today we'll talk about the negative side of it, contempt. So my philosophical inspiration for this um, is the philosopher Immanuel Kant, um, who, as a bit of trivia, today is actually would be his 294th birthday, as I learned, um, which is kind of fun. I actually didn't know what his birthday was until I was double-checking the year he was born. Yeah. Um, so I think Kant is interesting for a number of reasons. So Kant um, spent his entire life in a small town in what was then Prussia and what is now Russia, um, Königsberg. He grew up there. He didn't come from a particularly privileged background, um, and so he wasn't sort of a standard academic in many kinds of ways. But he, he also had a very complicated relationship to religion and religious faith. So on the one hand, he was very, in some ways, antagonistic to organized religion. He grew up um, in a pietist tradition, in Lutheranism, and he, and he had gone to a pietist school that he must have had some bad experiences in because he, he has some serious concerns about the effects of organized religion on people's lives. But at the same time, he also has a sort of deep sort of orientation toward a kind of framework that fits well, I think, within the Christian tradition. Kant was extremely fond of his parents, who didn't have a lot of education, but he, were very, very good people. His mother, in particular, was a deeply religious woman, and Kant was really impressed by what he took to be people's basic capacities for, um, for sort of faith and goodness in, in ways that he thought weren't related, certainly not to education, or he thought to sort of religious teaching exactly, um, but he had a great deal of confidence in people's ability to know what's right, but in ways that he thinks are sometimes hindered by organized religion, but also could be facilitated by some of the tools that religious reflection and contemplation bring to us. So, as I often tell my students, he's sort of like, he's like the original, like sort of spiritual but not religious, as many students these days are, except I think he wouldn't have described himself that way. But he's an interesting figure for people who are, um, who are interested in topics like contempt, because it's something that he wrote about, as we'll see, but he wrote about it from a perspective that is certainly not explicitly religious, but also has sort of a deep resonance with many people of a Christian faith, because even though... Kant himself didn't espouse or he rejected in many ways his own religious background. You can still see it very much in play in the types of concerns that motivate him and the way in which he thinks about the world. So Kant was deeply interested in and concerned about the relationship between what we might call sort of our moral ideals and the real world that we live in. And he's interested in this both at the level of our individual selves and also our communities. Right? So he believed that we all had the capacity as individuals, 
I use a lot of stick figures. That'll show up again. Um, to know what is right. So he has this fancy principle he calls the categorical imperative, and it's a, a principle that he thinks we can know by way of reason itself. And he thinks we all know this because it's something that is available to us if we're prepared to engage in the right kind of reflection. So in, that, in some ways, he resembles, I would say it's like with St. Paul, with the sort of the law is written on your heart. That is in some ways very much what Kant thinks is true. However, he also thinks that we as individuals and as communities are prone to a lot of different kinds of failings that make it very difficult for us to do this as individuals and also as communities. And so in some ways, the moral ideals, he thinks, it's not that hard in many ways to figure out what we should be doing and what our communities should be like. The problem is in some ways about self-knowledge, right? Because recognition of our own failings and flaws is, for Kant, the biggest stumbling block for reasons that I'll come back to. But the fact that Kant is so interested in this relationship, I think, is something that people don't always know about him. They tend to think of him as being very lofty, um, ivory tower philosopher, which in many ways he is. But he was really interested in this particular problem. How can we make our moral ideals and our moral commitments palpable in a very flawed world? And how can we maintain our commitment to those ideals in a world that is constantly pulling us away from it, both because of ourselves, because Kant really saw human beings in many ways as fundamentally broken and flawed, but in a way that he thinks is, is open to also a kind of reform and he has a great deal of optimism about the possibilities for human individuals and for human communities. So um, it's sort of, there's a big gap between what we're actually like and what we could be. But Kant has a lot of confidence in our capacity to close that gap over time and with each other. But it takes some work. So the, the basic sort of the upset, sort of the most important part in some ways of Kant's moral theory, and I'll just this quickly, is that he thinks that each of us as individuals has a kind of dignity. Now, we have this dignity on Kant's view because of our rational nature, not because we're children of God or because we are sort of participating in a kind of unfolding of creation, as many religious traditions do. But the way he thinks about dignity is very much in the way that many religious traditions think about it. To have dignity is to have a kind of value and worth that makes you not sort of, in, it makes you incommensurable with other people, meaning that each of us have a kind of ultimate worth in ourselves that can't be traded off um, or exchanged. And we have that whether or not we recognize it or anyone else recognizes it. And just as importantly, we all have that same kind of value. Each of us has um, an immense, incomparable kind of value in the same way. So this idea that each of us has value and each of us are equally valuable that way is kind of the dominant framework with which Kant is working. And in his view, this means that we owe ourselves and each other a certain kind of respect, which is the word often associated with Kant. We owe each other and ourselves respect in virtue of having this dignity, and we also owe ourselves and others equal respect. So. The constant challenge is to see ourselves and each other as having this value in the face of threats to that value and also maintaining our commitment to the equality of all beings with dignity. And Kant thinks there's a lot of things that push against this in, from different directions. Okay. So back to this picture about the moral ideals in the actual world. Whoops. There we go. There are, in Kant's view, sort of two big obstacles to thinking about ourselves and each other in this way, this moral ideal of beings with dignity and, um, and as moral equals. And the two big obstacles for us as individuals are these. Proclivities, he thinks, towards self-love, which he defined as pursuing our own interests over the interests of others, and self-conceit which is what he thought a human tendency to want to think of ourselves as being superior to other people. Um, he says we have this natural tendency to, to enjoy circumstances and situations that make us feel like we are better than other people. Now, Kant thought that this was just a mistake because the thing that gives us our value is our dignity, not our accomplishments, our achievements, or our, you know, our resumes, or anything else. 
But it's hard, he thinks, for us to remember that. And so we're always looking, he thought, for ways in which we can sort of come out looking better than other people and also enjoying sort of the downfall of others because anything that lowers other people raises us by comparison. And so for Kant, two of the biggest challenges that we face as human beings when it comes to trying to move from this flawed actual world to the more ideal world is overcoming our own tendencies towards self-love and self-conceit. It's self-conceit that I'm going to be focusing on with contempt. So here's what Kant says about contempt. Um, this is a long quote here, but um, I'll keep it up here for a minute. So Kant says, to be contemptuous of others, that is to deny them the respect owed to human beings in general, is in every case contrary to duty, for they are human beings. At times, one cannot, it is true, help inwardly looking down on some in comparison with others, but the outward manifestation of this is nevertheless an offense. I cannot deny all respect to even a vicious man as a human being. I cannot withdraw at least the respect that belongs to him and his quality as a human being, even though by his deeds he makes it unworthy of him. What Kant thinks is that it's not possible for anyone to sort of waive their standing as a being with dignity. We can fail to act like we have that dignity ourselves by acting in ways that aren't sort of worthy of the condition that we're in, he thinks. But, um, but that doesn't license anybody else to treat them that way. Because for Kant, the, the primary moral aim is to sort of keep front and center what and who we really are even in the face of all kinds of pressures from within us and from within the world to see ourselves and other people differently than that. Now, Kant here grants that it's pretty hard sometimes not to feel contempt for people, but he thinks that it's a duty that we have to each other, but also to ourselves and to the community to not express that. Because in expressing contempt, he thinks, we're violating what he takes to be a duty that we owe to other people. So I think Kant is basically right about this, but I want to say just a little bit more um, about what I think is going on with contempt that makes this what I think to be the right view about contempt. So I think that contempt, there's two aspects of it. I think that contempt, and I'm assuming that people know what I have in mind by contempt and expression, um, although in some ways the definition of contempt is part of what's at, at issue here. So we can talk about that more. I think that the two things about contempt, I think that it expresses something that we should worry about, which is what Kant is mostly focused on. But I think there's another part to contempt that matters too. I think that at least sometimes it does Something. It does something in the world that we should find troubling. So, what is it expressing? What contempt is expressing is the idea that the target of the contempt, the person to whom we're directing our contempt, okay, is somehow lower than us, or in kind of fancier language, isn't sort of worthy of membership in what we might call the moral community. And my moral community here, I just mean sort of the community of human beings, but understood as people who are participants in our common moral life. That what contempt is doing is expressing the attitude of, you don't belong right, in this community or in this conversation or in this sort of, um, this sort of network of people who are interacting with each other. I think that contempt is always wrong just in virtue of that, right, that, that I think there's always, there's always a problem with expressing this attitude toward another human being. But the other part of it, I think, which sometimes goes unnoticed, explains another feature of contempt that I think is important, which is that many of us think that contempt doesn't sort of work out evenly. Even if we think that nobody should ever express contempt, we can also pretty readily think of cases where we think contempt is worse than in other cases. And my suggestion is that contempt in expression in life, and this is where the manners part is going to come in, depends a lot on social relationships, but also social power. So if you think back, and I said this because I have um, middle schoolers too, if you think about middle school is like the perfect example of this. Um, middle schoolers are really, really good at turning other kids into sort of persona non grata. Like, so middle school in some ways is all about social power um, and the exercise of that in good and bad ways. And one of the challenges, obviously, with kids is to try to get them to, to use the kids, especially the kids who have power, but to use it well, right, and to create a, a, a community, to have them understand that. Um, 
But as we see, and we see this all over the place in our lives, that people aren't always equally well situated to exclude or draw people in. That one's capacity to do that depends on what one's power is in a given room. And that, in turn, depends a lot on things like social norms and and ways in which people think and the sort of conventions that govern interactions with different people. My suggestion is that even if we set aside the expressive part of contempt, we need to pay attention to what contempt actually does. Because I think that some expressions of contempt have the effect of pushing people out of the moral community by pushing them out of social interaction. So let me take a really palpable example of this. Um, It shows up a lot in context of mockery. Often when people want to mock someone, what they do is reach for a feature of that person in in virtue of which they're already vulnerable to a kind of dehumanization or marginalization. So, for instance, mocking someone um, with a disability, even in subtle ways, which, of course, happens a lot, is a way of picking out a feature of someone in which they're already vulnerable to a kind of marginalization or exclusion and sort of highlighting that feature of the person to kind of enhance the social effects of that exclusion. And so there's ways in which they're pretty familiar to us. And so with a lot of people's response that even if contempt is sort of always bad, it seems particularly bad when it's directed at people who are already vulnerable to marginalization and exclusion, who already occupy a place in our social world um, where, where they're vulnerable to exclusion from the moral community. So I think that contempt always has this expressive feature. That's true no matter who or what um, the context is when it's expressing that. But I think that in order to really understand what's going on with contempt and how toxic, to use a popular word, or poisonous it can be to civil discourse, we also have to understand its relationship to social power and and social circumstances. So to sort of give a picture version of this here, back to my stick figures, if we imagine this circle is representing the moral community in some way, and there are sort of members of it, and we imagine that this person, this stick figure, expressing contempt toward this person. Often contempt is an expression of an attitude that's just a two-way relationship, but often it's more than that. It's often trying to bring in an audience and get other people to see this person in the same way. And my suggestion here is that social power, I'll come back to that, um, is just the ability to get an audience, to get other people to see the person you want in the way that you see them, in the way that you're trying to project them. So This, which is representing the expressive dimension, the expressing the view towards someone they don't really belong here, I think is present in all forms of contempt. But when the person who's doing the contempt exercises, has a lot of social power, and is capable of altering these people's attitudes and behaviors in ways that mean this person is then excluded from the community, then we get that other part of contempt. I don't think that everybody is equally well situated to do this. I think that people who are already in positions of power are more capable of excluding others. On the converse, I think people who occupy positions of power are also capable of doing things for the better, of bringing people in, and I'll come back to that next week too. Um, So this part, to have social power, is to have the ability to not just to express attitudes toward people, but also to alter social arrangements in ways that effectively exclude people from this community, in part because to have social power is to influence how things work inside the community. So my claim here is that contempt is always wrong because of the attitude it expresses. And it always, I think, expresses the idea that the target of the contempt doesn't have the kind of dignity to which, um, to, that they do have, that Kant thought, and I think is right, that we do have. So that always makes contempt wrong. Right? But it's worse when it's wielded by people who are powerful toward people who are vulnerable. And that's because I think contempt has a particular ability to marginalize and exclude people in ways, and I think that's actually often the point of exercising contempt, is to try to exclude people from being able to sort of make claims and occupy a role in our community. And I also think... And I mentioned this before, and I'm not going to say much about I have a lot to say about this, but I'm not going to say that. We could talk about it if people want to. I think that mockery actually 
heightens this risk, having to do with, I'm kind of fascinated by the role of mockery in general, but also seeing the effects of it. I think there's an interesting Kantian explanation of why this is true. But I think that mockery um, as a way of expressing contempt is particularly dangerous in ways because it's fun, or at least it's fun for the people doing the mocking, not for the people being mocked, because it generates pleasure. And because it enhances, in some ways, that self-conceit that worried Kant, that mockery, it can be an effective way of sort of pointing out people's flaws to them, but it can also be a really effective way of excluding people from the community because it feeds on what Kant thought was the pleasure that we take in watching other people be brought down, a pleasure that he thinks feeds our self-conceit by allowing us to feel superior to people. So I think there's some interesting questions because contempt and mockery are often gone together. You can, I think, show contempt towards someone without mocking them. And I think you can mock people without showing contempt. But they, they do often travel together. And I think that's not accidental. I think that mockery, because it generates pleasure and it makes us feel good sometimes to watch other people be the, the targets of mockery, especially if we don't already like them, um, but that these things are connected, that the, the, the fun of mockery is in part bad for us because it enhances that self-conceit. Yeah, so this is, that's a really good question. The, um, it often depends on the definition of what mockery is. So I think there's sort of gentle forms of mockery that can sometimes be compatible with really respecting someone. So here's my example. When my um, kids were younger, I, sometimes maybe this is, this is bad parenting, might not be, but sometimes like if, if somebody is acting in a really kind of imperious way, you can kind of gently mock them by being like, you know, yes, like if my, one of my daughters made like a command, mom, do, mommy, do this, right? Like, yes, your highness, you know, as a way of kind of saying, I mean, you can do that in a very contemptuous way, but I think you can also do it in a kind of gentle way that sort of calls attention to like, you're acting like you're a princess, <laughs> like, and you're not, um, you know, you can at least have a plea on that or something. So I think there's ways in which we can use mockery, but, it's, but we have to do it really carefully. Like, so in most contexts, I think mocking your children or your students is clearly, I think, a problem because of those power relationships. Um, but I think there's ways of satirizing or mocking public figures that can be legitimate, legitimate and not contemptuous, but I think it has to do with whether we're kind of addressing it to them as someone who might listen and give it like give it a hearing as opposed to a way of kind of just diminishing them but i mean i think it's i think an awful lot of mockery is contemptuous but it might be definitional would you call my like yes your highness remark to a child mocking yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, that's kind of trying to be funny. So, I mean, it, there could be. It, it's, it is complicated because it's easy for that to turn into contemptuous mockery, I think. But I think we sometimes do kind of joke with people in a way that points out when they're behaving badly. And in some ways, it can kind of lighten the atmosphere if you do it in a kind of joking way. Um, and so I would say that's mocking, but not contemptuous mockery. It can also be a deliberate Yeah. Mockery is very effective at getting people to think, especially if it's mockery well done, right? It's very effective at getting people to give what Washington call like uptake of a person in a certain way. So this is why I think sometimes the audience matters. So I think that if you're going to mock someone, you have to. I have a, I have a lot of views on mockery. I'll see if I can keep it short. Philosophers are terrible at this. Um, that, that it has to be done in a way, I think mocking is often for an audience. And so then the question is, I think, what do you, who are you doing this for and why? And I think sometimes the thought is you could be doing it for that person. But then it's like, well, do you have a right to go around criticizing other people? I mean, I think it's your job as a parent, obviously, to correct your children. But even that doesn't show, oh, well, what are the techniques you can use or with students? Um, so I think it has to be a circumstance where you do have what I would call sort of standing to criticize someone, like engage in moral criticism, which I think we often do, um, but that it has to be done in a way that, that the point is to get the person to see themselves and their behavior in a certain way as opposed to just bring them down for the purposes of a broader audience, whether it's your electorate or your classmates or something. So I think that's 
important, that it has to be, like, addressed toward that person or could be. So they could be like, yeah, you're right, I'm acting like I'm that, as kind of a, a correction. Um, yeah. Yeah, the hard line. So, huh. yeah, sometimes I do too. I mean, I think there's, <laughs> yeah. The, the first of these, so both of these lines that have been pushed it's sort of by philosophers, but also sort of a field of people's common sense. Um, one, the first question about whether contempt could be, especially in response to racist contempt, so there's a philosopher named McAllister Bell who's argued that um, what she calls counter-contempt might be an appropriate way to respond to someone's racist contempt directed at a person. Um, as, as a way of sort of asserting one's standing. And then the second one, well, aren't there people who just, I mean, they're terrible. Like, they really are terrible. Like, why can't we hold white supremacists in contempt? That, I think, is harder. And it, but I think this is where the, the connection, I think, between Kant's sort of framework about having, holding out sort of the possibility of reform. And I'll, I will say more about this next week, too. Um, I, I think Kant, so Kant, I think, is right. There are people, in fact, they, some, they deserve contempt insofar as they're not living up to their sort of their, their better moral selves. But then that's a separate question from how we ought to respond to those people. So I would draw a distinction between outrage and contempt. I think outrage toward white supremacists is completely warranted and appropriate because I think that outrage is a way of holding people responsible and accountable for behaving better. Like this is just not okay, right? Um, whereas contempt has, I think, a, a way of, a, a sort of like shutting people out in a way that suggests that, well, it might suggest in some contexts that they're not even like members, like we just, we just exclude them. And you could think of it in terms of, well, it's not fair to them. I think that Kant's reasons, which I think are right for worrying about contempt, are not even so much about that person, but about us in general as a community and the importance of saying, yes, this person is morally terrible and they're not living up to their standards, but nevertheless, we can't treat them as if they're out of our moral community because that would be a way of denigrating all of us um, to say that someone could be treated this way. So, I, I mean, I, I think there's something compelling about it, and I think there's also, and I'll say more about this next week too, reasons to think that we have to hold out the possibility of moral reform for everyone, that it's a commitment, even in the face of what seems like evidence to the... Uh, but I think it's really hard. I don't know, you look like you find, don't find that satisfying. Yeah, I mean, to the outrage contempt distinction, I think matters here because I think outrage, anger, that is totally appropriate. Um, but the contempt, and some of this might be a matter of the, the words, like what kinds of behaviors are appropriate. Um, but the kind of di diminishing of someone's standing by sort of marginalizing them, I think actually makes it impossible for us to really hold them responsible because it's like saying they don't even they're not even worth engaging with. So I'm not, there's lots of questions. I'm not sure I should order, but. Do you, how, how do you, what are the norms for doing this? Do you all sort of, so, okay, I get to do this. So let me, um, if you want to jump in and yeah, keep. I think there's a difference between contempt for the person mm -hmm. and the contempt for the behaviors, beliefs, expressions. Mm -hmm. And so if you have I think that's right. And I think. So one of the things that I didn't say is that people often think about what seems to be true of contempt is that it's directed, it's what Foster called a globalist, that it's directed at the whole person in some ways too, that it's like the whole per not just like outrage at what somebody has done or some action, but the contempt is directed at the person. This is, I think, one of the things that Kant would think was problematic about it, um, is that it's about like this person, you are not worth engaging with at, at all. And that's what I think he thought. But yeah, it does seem to matter when we're talking about outrage at what the person's done. This is kind of like, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, um, which I think actually Kant was, I think Kant was committed to that in some ways, too. But what does that look like in practice? Like, are there, are there, can we separate the person from what they've done that easily? It's hard, I think, in the case of, like, white supremacists. Oh, then. Or, yeah, I think outrage is often justified. Mm -hmm. uh, those 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots to be outraged about. So I think there's interesting questions related to, like, about anger um, and its place. And lots of people think that anger doesn't have a place in civil society. I think it does, because I think that anger is sometimes the right. I mean, I think there's something to be said if you're not angry enough, you're not paying attention about things. And then we can also see that it's harmful not to be angry. I mean, sort of, but anger does a lot of things. It expresses solidarity to the people who are harmed. So if I, as you know, a Catholic, you know, express outrage at, a, at someone who's Holocaust denier, that's important also as a way of showing solidarity with other members of my community for whom this is more directly related. So I think that anger is often appropriate, but I would distinguish the anger from the contempt, which is sort of saying people, you know, who, you know, who you walk around with, with Nazi flags or have swastika, you're scrolling swastikas on, in elevators at Georgetown, which we had um, a couple of months ago. That people who are doing that, right, um, that, that warrants outrage, but yet not contempt in the sense of a kind of expressing like you were worthless scum kind of thing. So that's what I, th I think you can express anger without expressing the attitude that the person is worthless scum. Yeah, so. Sure. Yeah, that seems right to me. I, mean, I think that's, uh, you know, and in some ways we don't, we want to be able to say that without sort of, like, sort of feelings. In the sense, we want to be able to hold people responsible for saying, well, you know, having, you know, feeling inferior is not a reason. Lots, everybody feels inferior in some respects or other. But for, for this, on this sort of content approach, that person is making a mistake. Like, so people who are white supremacists are placing their value on their, on their skin color, right, which is obviously false. But context, it's not just like it's morally bad. It's just wrong, right, because your value comes from your dignity. And so the person for whom racism is important is just making a mistake about the source of their value, which Kant thinks comes from their dignity. And they're also making a mistake about the source of other people's value, which also comes from their dignity, too. Um, so, yeah, so it would be, in some ways, it is feeding the self-conceit. I, I mean, it's odd to think of racism that way, because it seems like it's more than that. But that desire to feel superior is the thing that is... And the propensity to feel inferior is one of the things on country that we're feeding this mentality. Like, I've got to feel better, superior to people, however it is that I'm doing this. And that's the part we have to let go of, on his view. But that's what he thinks really hard, us being as we are. I want to confirm that I understand correctly the definition for contempt. You view the word express a lot. Mm -hmm. Feeling contemptuous uh, and having that opinion about something, if I don't express it in Yeah, express it in a way that is sort of has an public using public loosely, right? Because there can be like private relationships that are contemptuous. Um, and people know John Gottman's work is kind of fascinating psychologist um, who has he's shown is really interesting. He's shown that contempt that you can actually predict divorce rates really well by watching how spouses interact with each other. Because in contempt, which he's got sort of laid out in a way that you can sort of operationalize, contempt is one of the biggest between partners in um, in a marriage is one of the biggest predictors of divorce, um, which is very interesting. And that's picking up on the expressions of each other. Yeah. No, no, that it's directed toward each other. So that may be in very private, not when they're watching, but very private context. It wouldn't be publicly. But in ways that were kind of familiar, kind of like eye rolling, diminishing what people are saying, sort of not taking them seriously in ways that this, as a way of relating to people, there's pretty good evidence from psychology that it's destructive of at least some relationships. Um, so... It would depend. It does depend a lot on what, and there's a lot of like fine-tuned, like you know, things you know, they're like, trying to distinguish contempt from others. But there's a kind of dismissiveness to contempt that is, the, I think, the crucial feature of it. That it kind of expresses an attitude. You know, if somebody says something and somebody else like rolls their eyes, I think eye rolling is really interesting. Um, that the eye rolling is kind of a signal to the rest, like we don't have to listen to what this person is doing. That. Those kinds of things are the things that I have in mind because they're ways that have sort of like 
shutting the person out. Like, this is someone we don't need to listen to, which is not to say that we always have to listen to everybody all the time. You know, I, I also talk about this with, this with my students sometimes. Like, well, you know, Georgetown, you know, has policies on free speech. We want people to be able to talk and express their views openly, but we have boundaries around this because the institution has moral commitments, right? There's some things that you can say to people that would say, that's just out of bounds because you're not treating your your fellow student, your fellow person, as as a human being in a, in a sense, and so and we can't, uh, it's not a, we can't be a free for all, right? There's got to be some constraints, and so contempt, as I'm thinking of it, would be ways of expressing to people that this person doesn't have a kind of standing to participate in what we're doing, um, but that's not to say that just everybody gets to say everything they want. Because then we have the problem about the white supremacists, right? Should we let, you know, or the, should we let white supremacists, you know, march through the center of campus in the name of free speech? Right? Georgetown's answer to that is straightforwardly, no. Um, we can't, right? Because that's incompatible with recognizing the dignity of everyone in our community. But then trying to draw the line between that and others is, is really hard. And I don't have a super clear and fast line on what this is. I think it's just kind of a spectrum. Yes. Yeah, the the denying. I mean, it's it's easy for us, as we know, right? Not just like to deny, outwardly deny the humanity of other people, but to do it in a lot of sort of subtle ways. So, um, and this is like one of the things that I think is so interesting about manners. So, I often, when I'm thinking about sort of manners and trying to argue that their, their significance, I point out that in King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he talks about obviously a lot of the tremendous evils that were part of the experience of African Americans, are, still are, part of the experience of African Americans. Um, and he sort of listened, but one of the things that he lists in there is, um, of the things is the fact that he says his wife and mother were never given the respected title of Mrs. And you might think, well, in a world of lynchings, like, is this really that important? But I think King right they saw it as a spectrum of things there's a kind of there's a dehumanization and sometimes it's really really apparent lynching um and sometimes it's subtle and a way of one way of diminishing it in this case was to sort of grant titles as a sort of symbol of social respect differently based on people's race and that's the stuff that might just go sort of under the radar screen for a lot of people oh it's just the way we do things but i think he was absolutely right to say this is subtle but an important way of kind of establishing and reinforcing hierarchies that deny the equality of people and their basic dignity. And so I think that the, so there is a sense in which a lot of, I mean, there's lots of people who I think would never would say, no, I'm, I mean, people tell the time, I'm not a racist, right? um, you know, because no one wants to be, well, some people want to be a racist, but people don't. But there's often attentiveness, I think, that's important to some of the behaviors that we're doing and that we're sort of taking for granted, lots of subtle dehumanization that happens. Some of it is not always subtle. I think you see this in the Me Too movement. You see a lot of ways in which we see sort of sometimes hidden dehumanization of people. And I think it's all on us, always, especially when I say us, people who occupy positions of social privilege, to be particularly cognizant in the ways that subtle dehumanization happens. Because the people who are most vulnerable to, social, to that dehumanization are often the people who are already marginalized in, in ways. And so I think the more we call our attention to what we're doing in those practices, the better, because there are so many subtle ways in which we treat people with contempt, sometimes just with body language, like turning your body or how you interact with people in public space. It can be really subtle, but really, really important. You know, who gets kicked out of Starbucks and who can sit there without ordering things? I've sat in Starbucks without ordering things a lot. I do eventually, but that, you know, and I can do, right? Because no, nobody kicks middle-aged white women out of Starbucks. So.
say both, all of it actually. That I think tone carries a lot. So we might talk about the mocking, like this is the you know, mocking, like even the gentle, particularly with kids who aren't that sensitive. But one has to do it really carefully because a shift in tone can shift, you know, how the uptake that the person gets. And it's also about choosing your moments, right? You know, those, I think everybody as you learn with teenagers, like there are better and worse times to have conversations with, you know, your teenager about something. And one of those is not, you know, at 10 o'clock at night when she's stressed about her AP world test the next day, right? For lots of reasons. But one of them is because they have to be in the right place to hear it. And I think we do a lot in terms of setting that tone. I think Kant was very skeptical about our authority to, to be judgy about people. So I actually gave a talk a couple weeks ago at Bates College in Maine about judginess, um, which I think I thought was there could be a vice. Like sort of partly he thinks because we just don't know. He thinks we're really bad at knowing why we're doing because he thinks we tend to be really self-serving in our, in our ways of thinking about ourselves. Like, I, you know, I, of course, am acting compassionately and for the sake of others, and we tend to be much harder on other people. But Kant thinks... We actually don't know that much about ourselves because we tend to rationalize and deceive ourselves about our own motives, and we know even less about other people. And so in general, when we're sort of often we're judging people, we're doing so, we can judge what they've done because we can see that, but judging their motives is another story, Kant thinks. We just don't know why people are doing what they're doing, which doesn't mean that we can't ever say you've done something bad, but... Again, the self-conceit, there's a tendency to want to be like, and you are a terrible person, unlike me, I'm, you know, this person. So that kind of things we always have to watch out for because so many of the sort of the, the judginess, I think he thinks, this strikes me as right, tends to come to be more in some ways about us and our desire to be, feel like, well, I would never do that. Um, and so I think that, but, it, but we can't make it so, so we can never judge people people at all or make judgments that would be a terrible situation if we can't say like marching through the streets of charlottesville with nazi flags and confederate flags is bad like we need to be able to say that um yeah so i so i think but i think a lot of it is tone a lot of it is do i what kind of authority do i have to hear to say that these people are bad or acting badly um i think we do have each of us has standing to criticize people for what they're doing in some ways, but we have to be careful about how we use it because it's often self-serving. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, it's hard though. It's more fun to be. I mean, it's, like, it's fun to be judgy. That's the problem, right? But it kind of like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of spoils for it. But he's like, kind of like, yeah, that is kind of the problem. It's the fact that it's fun is part of the problem because it's fun for the wrong reasons. I think, maybe. <laughs> Uh-huh. So who was it? Oh, Hitler. Yeah, yeah, Hitler. Sorry. Yeah. Um yeah, right. So um, he seems like a good candidate for contempt um, and outrage. I mean, yeah. So I think it does, when we start looking at the worst of the worst and we start to see somebody who's like sort of fallen so far below the standard. So there's a couple of things. There's one about whether what the person has done that makes it almost like impossible for us to see them as a human being. People have been particular, I mean, Hitler would certainly fall in this category, but there's others as well. And there's also maybe questions about whether we think a person could be reformed or not. And so this is obviously serious questions about criminal justice and recidivism. This is obviously really complicated. The stance, what I think that Kant thinks that we're required to take up, and I think actually this is one of the things that comes from some of the implicit Christian commitments that Kant has in the backdrop of his thinking, is that we must take the attitude toward people that they are capable of sort of both recognizing what they've done and and doing better, even if we have reason to think they won't do it. Um, 
and I'll talk more about this next week as well, but I think kind of, and that's not even, that's not an attitude that's actually tied to the facts in some ways. It's more like a moral stance that we take up to people. So when we think about the moral stance, I often wonder, like, in the very, in the case of people like Hitler, that's the very worst, whether it's like the saying about hard cases make bad law. I think sometimes hard cases can make bad ethics because it's, it's hard. We're not very good at distinguishing, like, who's worse, Idi Amin or Hitler. You know, they're all bad. Um, and those distinctions about it, about what, how much we can get off the, the ground. And also, we, of course, run into problems about questions about mental, constant problems about mental competence, right? Because we do often think that there are reasons that people that might not have, literally have capacities to know the difference between right and wrong. But let's suppose that Hitler, let's just assume that Hitler could. He could have understood what he was doing, but he didn't. Um, so the contempt, so this is on this too. I think in some sense, and one of the things that I think that Kant says I think is right is it may be the case that he deserves contempt, but there's reasons for us not to express it anyway. And reasons that have to do with us and our commitments and reasons that have to do with our community as well. That in expressing contempt, it's not just about that person, but it's about all of us because the source of our dignity is the same for all of us. And so if we diminish even a terrible person's dignity, we're in some ways diminishing our own. We're suggesting that this is something that can come and go, um, that people can sort of not have. And I think something like that, that is the thing we have to reject. But I, it's, I mean, it's really hard in the case of Hitler. Obviously, most things are. Yes. Question? No, um, and in some ways, yeah, I think there's reasons. Well, I mean, this whole controversy that just erupted about um, about Barbara Bush and the um, the uh, professor at what Fresno State, Fresno State um, who made the contemptuous remarks. So there's a kind of thing like don't, there's sort of there's a question like respect for the debt, you know. And there's time. This goes back to the question. There's timing, like in places for moral criticism. So we might think that even if a criticism is fair, right, there's better and worse times for it. Or if the person is dead, like what's the point? Um, I think. There is still a point to, to outrage, even against people who are dead, in the sense that it's a way of expressing a solidarity and a valuing of dignity. So still saying these are still offenses against the dignity that we all have that are still important and valuable. But we might also think that timing, uh, and that was just not like a comment about, about, um, about Mrs. Bush at all. I mean, I think the comments, even said the timing, right, the content of it, right, this is because these words are, so I'm not endorsing that content um, at all. Um, there's a lot to great to admire about Barbara Bush. Um, but even, and we may think that even when a criticism is a fair criticism, that there's ways of expressing it that are more or less, and I think we have a lot of conventions about, about not like criticizing people who are dead in the immediate, especially when people around them are grieving. Um, so, so yeah, so I, but I think there is value in, in avoiding contempt for other human beings across the board, no matter what the circumstances are. But the value is not just about that person and the relationship. It's about us as a community and what we take to be important and what we endorse about how we interact with each other. I see Amy standing up. <laughs> Thank you.